what is your relationship with Jesus like? There's a lot of ways in which we describe the relationship we have with Christ. We say, He is my Lord and Savior. He's my personal Lord and Savior, even. If you were to turn around and you were to talk to someone that you suspected might be unbelieving, how would you open the conversation with them? What would you ask them? Let's say you talk to them about the gospel and you, they understood what is being said about Jesus in the Bible. What would you then tell them they need to do? What would you tell them their relationship with Jesus now needs to look like? What, what would you say? How would you describe it? They're going to leave this conversation. They're going to go their own way. And what are you going to tell them they should be doing now? If they were to say, okay, I, I believe in this Jesus, how do I have a relationship with him? What, what does that actually look like? What does it even mean? What would you say? David, in our passage this morning, we know he has been anointed king over Israel. But it's going to be quite a long time before he actually sits on the throne. Because there's currently a king there in his place. And in the meantime, he's been brought into this kingdom. And he's been brought in precisely because the current king of Israel has gone crazy for lack of a better way of stating it. The Spirit of the Lord has left Saul, who is currently on the throne, and in place of the Spirit of the Lord, a harmful spirit from the Lord has been given to him, and it's tormenting him. And the only remedy that has been found in the kingdom is this little boy on whom the Spirit of the Lord has fallen, which just so happens to be the same young man that Samuel anointed to be the next king over Israel. We're told in a previous passage that the palace aides around Saul say, hey, listen, uh, we've got this kid out there in the, in the wilderness who's the son of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord seems to be with him. We'll bring him in, and when he plays the lyre, it will soothe you, and you'll be, you'll be just fine. And that is the method that God has used to actually give some measure of grace to Saul, is bringing David into this kingdom. But understand that because the Spirit of the Lord has rushed upon David, there are a lot of things that happen as a result of that. He does fantastic things for the kingdom of Israel. He, he goes into battle against Goliath, who is the Philistine soldier who's taller and stronger than all the rest of the army, and he single-handedly takes him down and cuts off his head. And the rest of the children of Israel then rush out into battle and they go and defeat the rest of the Philistines. Everywhere he goes into battle, the Lord is with him and gives him victory. And all the men of Israel follow him, and everything is pretty great behind this one man whom the Lord has rushed upon with His Spirit. And so we see in the previous passage, which we covered chapters 18 and 19 last week, last time I'll ever do that, uh, it has become painfully obvious to Saul that not only has the Lord's Spirit left him, but the Lord's Spirit has rushed upon David. 
And that fact enrages Saul. It makes him mad. It makes him jealous. We're, we're told several times in chapter 18, verse 12, verse 14, verse 28, that the, the Lord was with David. And then we're even told that as a result of David's anointing by the Spirit of God, it says, when Saul saw that he had great success, that is, David had great success, he stood in fearful awe of David. That's in chapter 18, verse 15. The result is that Saul is driven to the point of jealous rage, to the, to the point where he's going to murder David by pinning him to the wall with a spear on several occasions. He brings him in close, he takes a spear, tries to pin him to the wall. David narrowly escapes. Brings him in close, tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. David narrowly escapes. He even goes so far as to make his plans known to the men around him, the people that are in his command, even his son, Jonathan, which Jonathan makes known to David. It seems from the way the story unfolds that Saul has a, a, a lot of these actions are, are explained away as Saul just having a, a screw loose. Well, he's just, he's just in a jealous rage right now, or the Spirit has rushed upon him and is, is tormenting him, and he's, he's flown off into a rage. Because as we see today, Jonathan doesn't think that Saul really does want to kill David. In spite of everything that's just happened, Saul, Samuel, I mean, Jonathan, forgive me, doesn't, still doesn't think that, that Saul wants to kill David. Maybe that Jonathan is just thinking the best of his dad, or he's just trying to explain away some of the things that, are, that, that he's done. But regardless, the, the text last week is, has taught us that in spite of Saul's best efforts to kill David, the Lord continues to be with him. And as long as the Lord is with David, all of Saul's plans to kill David are going to be thwarted. So we see that come about in several different ways. David has success on the battlefield because the Lord is with him. David still won't be killed, even though Saul sets him up in various places where he might be killed on the field of battle, and instead the Lord grants him success. The Lord intervenes through the actions of Saul's own children. Jonathan reaches out to save uh, uh, David, by, by pulling Saul aside and having a conversation with him. Michael, David's wife, helps David escape. She learns of Saul's plan. She helps him escape out the window and lies for David. David, uh, this, a harmful spirit rushes upon Saul, and he's confused. Instead of being able to enact his plans with clear and level thinking, God gives him a harmful spirit and confuses him and doesn't allow him to be able to enact his mad plans. Even all the messengers that he sends down to arrest David, in, the Lord's Spirit intervenes and causes them to prophesy instead of, instead of being able to arrest him. Even to the point where Saul himself goes to take matters into his own hands and the Spirit rushes upon him, strips him of his clothes, and leaves him in madness, prophesying on behalf of David rather than arresting him and killing him. Turn after turn, Saul is thwarted and David succeeds, and it's all by the Lord's providence. The Lord's hand is on him. But here in our passage this morning, we've arrived at this crucial moment in the story. It turns out 
that when someone tries on several occasions to pin you to a wall with a spear, tends to change the nature of the relationship a little bit. (laughs) David seems a little bit apprehensive towards Saul, not quite willing to trust him. By the end of the passage this morning, David is going to be on the run from Saul for really the rest of the book. But that presents, obviously, an immense amount of difficulty on several fronts. First of all, David is married to Saul's daughter. So, the fact that his father-in-law is trying to kill him, probably some son-in-laws out there have maybe experienced something like this before, when his father-in-law is trying to kill him, that, that tends to strain the marriage a little bit. That tends to strain all the relationships a little bit. But second, Saul's son Jonathan has promised an undying devotion to David. The son of the king promises an undying devotion to the, the, the fugitive, David, who's on the run. That also is going to put a strain on the relationship. It's, it's making David a mortal enemy, making him a fugitive of the law, is going to put a strain not only on the family of the kingdom, but also on the entire nation of Israel. Imagine how you would feel if here is the heir apparent coming into your town, and you've got a choice. Do you harbor him and hide him and make yourself an enemy of the king? Or do you tell the king and make yourself an enemy of the heir apparent? You can see what kind of strain this is going to put on the entire nation as David is set to run. And no one's going to feel that more intensely even than Saul's own family. So we're going to see God's enduring protection of David especially through Jonathan, and that's going to come to a focus here in our passage this morning And John, as Jonathan makes a covenant with David. But there's also a message in this passage that is very clear to the entire nation of Israel, and it's this. You must choose whom you will serve. Are you going to serve David, or are you going to serve Saul? It's a very clear message. Who are you going to serve? And what does it actually look like to make yourself allies with God's King? What does it look like for a nation to make themselves an ally with God's King in David? And it's enacted by Jonathan in this passage. This is what it looks like to follow God's King. So at the end of this passage, we'll see that covenant loyalty to David comes with eventual reward, but as we'll see with David and Jonathan, there's a steep initial cost that has to be paid. And we're going to see this happen in three scenes in this passage. In the first scene, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Remember, David had gone down to Nioth in Ramah to see Samuel and to tell him that Saul was chasing him. And eventually Saul found out about that, and he goes down there to pursue him. And as was said earlier, the Spirit of God intervened so that every messenger that Saul sent, even Saul himself, were effectively possessed by the Spirit and began to prophesy on David's behalf. Saul even stripped down naked. 
So since he's been found out, David is now going to flee to wherever Jonathan is so that the two of them can meet up and David can find out what in the world is going on and why is your, da- is your dad pursuing me. Now this interaction between Jonathan and David at the beginning here of this passage is a little bit strange because David is convinced that Saul wants to kill him and so he's asking Jonathan what he's done wrong that Saul would attempt to kill him but Jonathan's response is there in, in verse 2, and he seems like nothing's wrong. Look at verse 2. He says, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Now, it seems a little bit strange, because if you look back at chapter 19, in verse 1, it says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. He just told him right there, you you should go kill David. So it's not as if David is crazy when he's talking to Jonathan, and he's saying, your dad wants to kill me. Jonathan has heard as much in the past, Saul tell him personally that I want David dead. So why is he now denying that his dad is trying to kill David? Well, if you remember in the passage, right after that, not only does Jonathan warn David, but he pulls Saul aside and he tells him, look, why would you sin against David by shedding innocent blood? David's done nothing to you. And more than that, God has actually saved Israel through David. So why would you then go to the next step of of killing him and taking innocent blood? And so right after Jonathan pulls him aside and has that little conversation with him, then Saul tells Jonathan, all right, look, I've made a mistake. All right, we'll bring him in. I I won't kill him. I'll make a vow to you. He won't be put to death. So he tells Jonathan that. And then right after that, he takes a spear in his hand and he tries to kill David. (laughs) So, So which is it? Is Saul not going to kill David like his promise to Jonathan was? Or is he trying to kill David? Well, it seems like everybody in the kingdom around Saul is seeing in front of them basically a Saul with multiple personalities. Two different Sauls. It seems as though, and that's how Jonathan understands, that that there's times where Saul is under spiritual torment and it's not the real him. He's being tormented by a spirit and that's what makes him fly off in this jealous rage trying to kill David. So I think what Jonathan's saying here to David is that that's not the real him. That's not his plan. His plan is not to kill you. If it were, he would tell me everything. He would tell me that he was going back on his promise because, listen, if there was a policy that Saul was trying to enact, believe me, he would tell me. He told me he was going to try to kill you in the past, and I talked him out of it. But see, David is basically thinking, look, Saul is wise to your, your relationship with me. And he understands now the kind of relationship that we have, and so he's hiding it from you, and so he's trying to kill me. Saul's just keeping you in the dark. So they devise this plan to test whether or not Saul is actually trying to kill David, which also has David, uh, it allows him to disappear for a while until it's safe. So we see this plan in verse 5. Look with me there. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. 
but let me go, that I may hide myself in the field the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, and for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant, but if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. So they have this plan, and believe it or not, David is actually goes on to say he's open to the notion that he might have done something wrong against Saul. In which case he tells Jonathan, look, if, if I have done anything wrong, why don't you just kill me yourself rather than making your dad do it? Why don't you just come here and just kill me yourself? And this prompts Jonathan to take David out of the interior gathering where they are, outside. He pulls David outside, and it forms this visual illustration. It's like Jonathan taking David outside and saying, Look, I'm going to say this out in the open so that even God can see me. God is my witness here. That's why we're outside. That doesn't mean God can't see indoors. It's a visual illustration, right? He's pulling David outside. He's saying, Look, this is a promise that I'm going to make for you. I'm going to do it out in the open so that even God can hear me. Everyone can see me about what I'm about to say. And he says it in verse 13. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So it's this very sweet moment, outside of Jonathan speaking about himself in the third person. That's a little weird, but it's, it's a sweet moment where he makes this covenant with David that the Lord do, I'm bearing the curse, in other words. The Lord do some more to me if I don't intervene. So this part of the covenant that Jonathan makes with David is massively important. And you can't misunderstand what's being said here. Don't forget this, because we'll see this in just a moment. But Jonathan says that if his own father is intending to kill David, then Jonathan will subvert the plans of the king in order to spare David. Do you see that? That's what Jonathan's promising to David. Look, if I learn that my father is trying to kill you, I will intentionally subvert his plans in order to protect you. That is a massive covenant. That is a big promise that the son of the king is actually making. But it does cause us to ask a question, doesn't it? Surely. Why would Jonathan ally himself with David over and against his own father? Why would Jonathan stick his neck out like that for this young whippersnapper over and against his own father and subvert his father's plan? And the answer to that comes in verse 14. If I am still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on his enemies. Why would Jonathan ally himself with David over and against his own father, and intentionally subvert the plans of his father. And here it is. Jonathan is convinced that David is the rightful king on the throne. That's it. Jonathan is convinced that David is the rightful king 
on the throne. He's convinced that the Lord is going to fight for David. And what does he say? Sweep away all of his enemies. And, and very simply, Jonathan does not want to be numbered among the enemies of David's kingdom. Look at what he says. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So he knows that not only is David king over all of Israel, he's the rightful king, but also the Lord is going to cut off all the enemies from David's house. Anyone that opposes David is going to be cut off and judged, and Jonathan doesn't want to be numbered among them. So he's making this covenant with him. Makes a covenant with David to avoid judgment that God is surely going to bring. So they have a plan concocted, which we'll see come to fruition a little bit later, where Jonathan is going to inform David about Saul's feelings of him, and they part for a few days so that Jonathan can investigate whether or not this is true. So that brings us to the second scene where we see that this covenant divides the royal family. The covenant between Jonathan and David divides the royal family. Jonathan discovers rather quickly that this covenant with David is going to put him at odds with his father. David is supposed to have a seat at the monthly festival here at, at Saul's table, and he doesn't show up for the first day, and he doesn't show up for the second day in a row, and Saul gets a little bit curious, and he asks Jonathan why David's not there. And Jonathan gives him the cooked-up response that he and David had worked on together. Oh, he's gone down to Bethlehem for a sacrifice there, and, you know, that kind of thing. And so he asked me if he could leave, and I told him that it would be okay. But Saul sniffs out the lie. Jonathan is protecting David. So Saul makes it abundantly clear to Jonathan what this means in terms of the throne over Israel. In verse 31, look with me. He says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me. In other words, you know where he is. For he shall surely die. As long as David is alive, Jonathan will never be king. So two things become interesting about this interaction between Jonathan and Saul. First, Jonathan doesn't care whether or not he ever becomes king. You see that? Jonathan doesn't care if he's the rightful heir to the throne. He seems unfazed by the fact that he won't be king. He has accepted that he will not be king, even though he is, by all accounts, the heir apparent I think we've seen this in the previous story where he gives David his armor. It's not because Jonathan lacks courage either. We've seen in many, many stories with Jonathan up to this point that he doesn't lack courage. He goes and attacks a field of Philistines by himself. He does not lack courage. It's not because he's, he's not wanting the throne like his father was. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that he's able to survey the spiritual situation in Israel. God has given him spiritual eyes to look upon the kingdom and understand what God is doing here. And that is, he is putting David on the throne and not him. David is king over Israel and he's perfectly fine with whatever the Lord decides to do here. But the second interesting part of this scene is that right after 
Saul tells Jonathan, hey, if David is alive, then your throne will never actually happen because David's going to take over. He's going to overthrow me. Right after he tells Jonathan that, he takes a spear and tries to kill him. Which is it? <laughs> do you want Saul to sit, do you want Jonathan to sit on the throne? Or do you want to kill him with your spear? Look, there's nothing more a threat to Jonathan's life than Saul. So for Jonathan's part, he would rather be opposed to his own father than be opposed to God's rightful king. And it's also a very good thing that Saul seems to be a terrible aim with a spear. The spear is not his weapon. Pick something different, man. Get a sword or something. It's not your weapon. He's about as accurate as a stormtrooper. All the Star Wars fans laughed. That's okay. It's enough for me. It's important that you understand what's happening here in this story. Jonathan is actually giving up allegiances to his own family. You get that? He's giving up allegiances to his own family. But for, for Jonathan's purposes, the dynasty, the kingdom in Israel, is the family business. Now, granted, Saul, his father, is the first one. But this business of taking the throne from your father is the only business Jonathan has ever known. And as the firstborn son, that would be natural for you to take on the family business. But he's willing to let it be overtaken by the person who is obviously God's man. To the point that he's willing to die for his association to David. Even though it means he is putting himself against his entire family. So he knows that if Saul is willing to kill David then it's going to mean that he's willing to kill him too. As we've already seen, he tried to take a spear and kill him with it. But even before Saul does that to Jonathan, look back in verse 14. Jonathan tells David, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. I don't think he's worried about dying of old age. I think he's worried that if what David says is true, and I go into the kingdom, and I'm going to intervene between you and my father. It's going to put me in the crosshairs of my dad. So if I'm still alive when all of this is over, don't kill me. See, for Jonathan, following the Lord's direction, by following the Lord's king, puts himself in the crosshairs of everyone who would oppose him. It's real now. This becomes an intense issue. If he's going to follow God and follow God's king, then that means God's king and loyalty to God's king comes even before his own family. There's a message here to the nation of Israel, first of all who is receiving this book as they are living under the reign of King David, or perhaps even living under the reign of one of David's sons. Jonathan is setting a pattern for all of them. 
for how one is to live in God's kingdom and not be swept away in judgment. How do I, how do I live under this king? How do I submit to this king? How am I not swept away in judgment when God wipes all of David's enemies off the map? And the answer is, you must submit to David as king or else be judged. That's it. You either submit to David as king or you will be judged. It's not only Saul's house that is divided, it's also the nation that is divided. Some in the nation may be loyal to Saul, may think that Saul is the rightful heir or his heirs are rightful heirs of the throne. We'll see even after Saul dies that not everyone is willing to submit to David. There's quite a long period of time where there's some discrepancy as to who is the rightful king when we get into 2 Samuel. Some may simply not enjoy the reign of David or David's sons. They may think, this is for the birds. Who is this kid? He's got no business being on the throne. But the message from God by Jonathan is clear. The enemies of the Davidic line will be cut off from the face of the earth. Without question. This brings us to the third and final scene where we see that this covenant endures the wilderness of suffering. This covenant endures the wilderness of suffering. So Jonathan now has his answer. Saul wants to kill David. The first phase of the plan is complete, and now it's on to phase two. There's this rather strange plan that they've concocted where Jonathan is going to take a servant and he's going to go down to the shooting range and he's going to take his bow and arrow and he's going to fire the arrows into the distance and he's going to tell his servant to go fetch the arrows. And if he tells the servant that the arrows are on this side, then David knows it's safe, you can come home. If he tells the servant the arrows are on that side, then David knows he needs to run. Seems very, very strange, a very strange plan indeed. Now, to clarify what's going on here a little bit, let's understand Jonathan cannot be seen in public with David. That would be high treason. So he can't go out there and just be seen out in the public with David. And as much as, as Jonathan has already put himself at odds with his own father, he's going to maintain a close relationship. And he's going to be in the kingdom for some time. And he's going to serve as really right-hand man to his father Saul even while he is allied with David. So you can see what kind of relationship Jonathan is about to have. Jonathan, it turns out, is one of many people in the Bible, as we've seen time and again, to hold positions of authority in kingdoms that they're personally not allied with. You remember Joseph, who's down in Egypt? He's working for a kingdom that he's personally not a big fan of. But he has a high position in Egypt, and he has to use it to the best of his ability and walk a tightrope. Or what about Daniel, even more so, in Babylon, where he's going to work in a kingdom that he's not personally that much a fan of, and he intentionally disobeys some of the laws of the kingdom that conflict with his following God? Well, it turns out Jonathan has, has just had this altercation with, with Saul, sure, but he's left in this position of high rank inside Saul's kingdom. And yet, he is personally allied with David. He's going to be beside his own father when they die, 
fighting with Saul against the Philistines when they die. So he's going to be close with his father, but he's also going to be allied with David in trying to protect David. So he provides us with one more example of this godly kind of character where you submit to the king that God has placed over you in Saul, and yet you don't compromise the covenant that you've made with God's Savior in David. So it's quite the tightrope that Jonathan has to walk here, and he does it pretty flawlessly. Nevertheless, he is openly sneaking secrets to Saul's enemy. And doing so is a bridge too far. So he has to exercise some wisdom here. So he, he takes his servant out there. They go to the, tar- the target range, practice some targets, or shooting at some targets. He sends his arrows out there, and he tells the, the boy, hey, the arrows are on that side, which is the code that David, is, who is nearby, is meant to hear and understand that means that I have to run. So it's, he, he understands he's got to go. Saul is planning to kill him. Now what's odd about this plan is that after they go through this whole secret code shenanigans, Jonathan takes his bow and arrow, gives it to his servant, says, go back to the city, and then he just meets out in the open with David. Well, again, what is it? I thought you were supposed to hide under cloak and dagger. What is the issue here? Well, it seems that, for one, the boy has given Jonathan sufficient cover. In other words, Jonathan has an alibi now. If he just walked out on his father and ran straight to the field and meets openly with David, I think Saul's going to get a little suspicious and bring him in for questioning, at the very least. But taking the servant out there and firing at the range and telling the boy to go back home provides sufficient cover and an alibi. Jonathan can say, we went out to the range, didn't we, boy? And the boy says, yeah, we were out there shooting targets at the range. The boy, it says, did not see David, didn't even know David was out there. So he's got a plausible alibi, for one. But there may also be something else here. Namely, that the reality of the situation has probably fallen on both of them. That once Jonathan says to the boy, let's go home, he realizes what this means. And what it means is that God's king is now going to be on the run from Saul until Saul dies. Probably for David, it is also pretty heavy. We see that, actually. David comes out of hiding once the boy has gone, and he bows down to the earth three times, in, obviously in prayer, and he's weeping because he knows that he is a vigilante, essentially, or he's a, he's a, sorry, a fugitive. He's going to be on the run. So to Jonathan, David is not only king, but he's something of a son, And you need to understand this. It often gets lost in a lot of these passages. But Jonathan, just by basic math of when all the kings took the throne, Jonathan is somewhere around the age of 30 or even north of 30 when David kills Goliath. All right? So Jonathan is at the youngest, he's 28. And at the oldest, he's somewhere around 40 when David kills Goliath. When David kills Goliath, he's not of fighting age. In fact, he's the youngest of eight sons. Only his three oldest brothers are of fighting age, which is about 20 years old. So that means that David is probably a very young teenager when he takes Goliath down. So what's happening here is not necessarily a peer-to-peer relationship. 
Jonathan to David is much more like a father-son relationship. Jonathan is taking David in as his own son, and he's realizing that grandfather is so mad at his own son that he's trying to kill him, and Jonathan now has to put himself in between the king and the king-to-be. David is going to spend the next many years on the run from the king who's attempting to kill him. Jonathan's going to spend just as long attempting to interfere with his father's plans to kill David while also navigating all the political terrain that that's going to mean. He's going to have to hide some things. He's going to have to do some things that are going to compromise him. Both David and Jonathan are going to be worried sick about each other. So whatever the reason for giving up the plan here and sending the boy back in and, and embracing one another, the, it, the situation is pretty clear that both of them are lamenting the reality of what's happening. They realize how tragic this is, not just even for them personally, but also for God's kingdom. The king over God's kingdom right now is driven mad and is tormented and wants to kill the king-to-be. What a tragedy for God's people. God's kingdom is clearly going to bring upon them both many sorrows that they're going to have to endure. We live in a world of casual association. There is little to which we commit our entire lives. Think about it. How many things in your life have you committed your entire life to? It was common even to keep a job for 40 years in my parents' and grandparents' generation. It's now common to change jobs every two years. Not necessarily saying that's a bad thing inherently, but even what used to be a lifelong commitment is, is really not. Marriage now in our culture is seen as only temporary. We make a covenant with each other, but now it's common to sever ties for reasons like irreconcilable differences, whatever that means. There seem to be no commitments anymore that are lifelong. Parents walk out on children. Friends split with other friends over petty differences. Church membership, now it's very common in our church culture to hop from one church to another the second we get mad at anything. It's often, unfortunately, through the lens of casual association that we also see our relationship with Christ. And you think, well, no, I'm, I'm committed for a lifetime. But it is through a lens of casual association that we see our relationship with Christ. He is here for us when we need Him. He relieves our anxiety. He says He gives us what we ask for, even in the New Testament, that he, His love for us is unconditional. When we read the, the New Testament through the lens of casual association, we see some pretty terrific promises that are coming from Christ to us. Here are all the things Jesus is promising to me. Makes for us a pretty good deal when we look at it. Yet in our casual association with Him, we then think, he doesn't require anything of me. These are promises to me that are unconditional. Monday through Saturday, no repentance is required. 
The way we lead our families seems to matter very little. Sunday becomes optional to us. As long as I don't have something better to do, then our family will be at church. When we're at home throughout the week, Sunday through Saturday, where is the place of Scripture? Where is the gathering of the family around the Lord's Word? My everyday choices are of really no consequence to anything and to my relationship with Christ. Jesus is there for me when I want Him, but when I don't want Him, He sits over there in the corner quietly and doesn't bother a soul. Today's Western version of Jesus is not much different than Aladdin's genie. Take the lamp, rub the lamp, out pops the genie. Try some of column A, try all of column B. I'm in the mood to help you, dude. You ain't never had a friend like me, right? Gives me everything that I want. The only problem with this way of thinking is, of course, that pesky Bible. Does it really allow us to describe our relationship with Christ as my personal Lord and Savior? Instead, it says, instead of viewing your relationship to Christ as one of casual association, we should view it through the lens of covenant. Our association with Christ looks nothing like Aladdin and his lamp. And it looks everything like Jonathan's allegiance to David here. Jonathan is aligning himself with the entire line of David. David and his line is rightful heir to the throne. And guess who that line ends in? It ends in Jesus Christ. Jonathan's allegiance to David looks everything like what our relationship to Christ should actually be. One of covenant in Christ's resurrection from the dead. He's anointed as king over all of heaven and earth. And everyone who wishes to be included in the kingdom of Christ has to come to Christ not by casual association, but by covenant like Jonathan comes to David here. Our covenant with Christ should also supersede all other associations and relationships. Do you remember what Jesus says about all those who would follow after Him in Matthew 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow Me is not worthy of Me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. That might as well be a summary of 1 Samuel chapter 20. What Jesus describes here about discipleship is exactly the steps that Jonathan is taking in aligning himself with David. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jonathan is doing exactly that. He's putting David as king ahead of his own father. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jonathan is giving up his own rightful claim to the throne. 
He's putting his own life on the line. He might die because of his association with David. This right here is a perfect summary of 1 Samuel chapter 20. Jesus' definition of what discipleship looked like is exactly what Jonathan is doing here. And it doesn't sound much like a genie in a bottle. See, coming to Jesus truly is not merely believing that He rose from the dead. We have to get away from this understanding that our relationship with Jesus is, is merely about me saying, yeah, I, I believe He's not a liar. That's the bare minimum. Not everyone who just says, I believe that Jesus is not a liar, is in the kingdom. That's, that's not what discipleship actually looks like as Jesus Himself defines it. It's not merely about coming to Jesus and just believing that He rose from the dead. It's allying yourself with a king that will often set you against father and mother, sister and brother, friend and neighbor. In some places, your association with Jesus will mean your death. Allegiance to Christ as king means he gets to tell you what to do. That's what it means to be allied with Christ. But you see, there's no other way to come to Christ except to come to Him through covenant. You must enter into a covenant with the rightful heir of David's throne. But what is the alternative? Jonathan sees the alternative. The alternative is being swept away with all of God's enemies. Because God is going to judge the earth. This is the reality that comes to bear on us in the New Testament church community living under the reign of Christ is either submit to the Davidic king, Jesus Christ, or be swept away with all of his enemies because the reality is there will be a day on which God has fixed where he will judge the earth, where he will send Christ back, and, and on that day he will take all of his enemies and sweep them away. If you don't want to be numbered among them, then you must ally yourself with the Davidic king, with Christ. Well, you say, how do I do that? Submitting yourself to Christ's rule is first about repentance. Do you see and understand your sin? Do you know what it is? If you're blind even to your own sin, Ask the Lord to reveal it. Show me my sin. Confess your sin to Him. Turn from your sin. Believe. Be baptized. Join the church. Be built up under His rule and His reign. Submit your life to His authority. And be saved in the day of judgment. In a moment, we're going to take this cup and this bread. And when we do, that's precisely what we're saying. I am allying myself with King Jesus. He has the right 
to take my life and do with it what He will. If that means I am in the crosshairs of the entire world and am put to death, then so be it. I drink the cup knowing that that's a possibility. That's what we're doing when we drink of the cup. We're gathering together as a body and we're saying, this is for me. I'm re-upping on the new covenant in Christ's blood. I need Jesus. It's not for those who are perfect. It's for those who know they're not. And who know the only way to salvation is through Christ. So we're going to pray And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would reveal to us the sin that is in our life, that we might confess it, that we might turn from it, that we might repent and believe. We pray that in this taking of the Lord's Supper, that you would unite us together as a body. That we might be gathered together under the new covenant in Christ's blood and celebrate the fact that he has brought us into his kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name.